This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell. Lindsay, how do you feel about the flickering lights in here today? Are you enjoying those? Yeah, I do. It's a nice ambiance. It's never too bright, never too dark. <laughs> no, it gives it a real party feel, doesn't it? All yeah. The flickering lights. You can't afford a disco ball. You got to go with the flickering lights. <laughs> exactly. Liberalism causes climate change. I know. Don't worry, Democrats who call yourselves liberals. This is not about only you. Okay, it is about you, but it's not again, about only you. For instance, you Republicans out there who think this is a chance to own the libs on climate change, well, guess again. This is about you causing climate change, too. The liberalism that causes climate change is the kind of liberalism that Democrats and Republicans show bipartisan support. Yes, this can be a bit confusing when political literacy is so dumbed down here in the United States. The establishment media, our supposedly free press, does such a bad job explaining basic political concepts that their audience does not know what liberalism actually means. It's not surprising when that same media never dares to utter the word neoliberalism, the new N-word, the dominant system that controls all of our lives, avoiding it as if it is a profanity. Sure, in many respects, neoliberalism is profane, and it does deserve our disrespect and derision because it puts profits before people, the market above democracy, while prioritizing money over human lives, like our lives. As our guest will explain in a few minutes, the liberalism that causes climate change is the liberalism that promotes the idea that liberty, justice, and freedom, with an emphasis on individual freedom and private property, can only come about through industrialization and continued economic growth. You know, that industrialization and persistent economic growth that actually causes global heating. That drive for endless economic growth is fueled by our media-imposed obsession with luxury and wealth. The media's non-stop promotion of a lifestyle resembling the super-rich and their wasteful spending. In fact, if you want to embrace degrowth ethics, one step is to understand that when you hear the word luxury in the media, what they really mean is waste, the kind of waste that is warming our planet at frightening rates. We'll discuss the foundational cornerstone of climate change shortly when we welcome to This Is Hell anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the NEMA magazine article, What We Have to Give Up on, sorry, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. Sustainability efforts are scaling and speeding up, but the treadmill of global economic growth is still faster. Dominic teaches at Rice University, where he also served as founding director of the Center for Energy and Environmental Research in the Human Sciences. He is a 2021-2022 fellow at the Bergruen Institute, an independent think tank aimed at reshaping political and social institutions in the face of the great transformations of the 21st century. You can find out more about Dominic at Dominic Boyer, B-O-Y-E-R dot org. And you can follow Dominic on Twitter, at Dominic Boyer. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing 
is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, it has been far, far too long since the last time you and I were doing the show together. Uh, I think that was way back at the beginning of March, nearly three months ago. I think at that point in time, I was very happy to be mispronouncing and eating punchki at the time. And then all of a sudden, something horrible happened to my stomach, which I was blaming on Lent for a while, but it was something else altogether. Anyway, Lindsay, how have you been? What's new in your world? I mean, what isn't new? I mean, it's spring now. I think <laughs> yeah. it was winter last time I saw you. So <laughs> Everything is new, essentially, right? Yeah, it's farming time now. <laughs> oh, is it? Yes. What are you farming? Um, you know, well, I mean, I don't have a farm, <laughs> but I have a community garden plot. I just, my potatoes came up for the first time I saw them yesterday. It's pretty nice. Oh, that's fantastic. What kind of potatoes? Uh... I got some purple Peruvian potatoes um, for free, and so I planted those. And then just some, you know, normal gold ones, I guess. Organic ones I'm supposed to plant at the community garden. So organic potatoes. What's the What's the neighborhood your community garden's in? Um, it's in uh, Rogers Park. It's right down the street. It's right off of Devon and Clark, basically. Oh, no kidding. Oh, that's fantastic. I would really want to go check it out. I want to see your community garden really yeah, bad. Yeah, I mean, you should. There, Everybody should go. It's a park district garden. There isn't a lock on it. So you can go in there and they have a bunch of perennial herbs go- growing that you can forage. There's oregano, there's mint, there's St. John's wort, there's motherwort, there's a bunch of lemon balm, and it's all public, you know, besides what's in the people's plots, but... That's very cool. That's very cool. I got to go over there. I'll get the exact uh, coordinates location from you so I can go check it out. Thank you. That's fantastic. I really want to do that this weekend. Now I have a plan for this weekend. Uh, I'm definitely having difficulties transitioning from a lifestyle that included being hospitalized and stuck in a hospital bed for 15 days, only to go home and unable to get out of my own bed for another 10 days, and then another few weeks when I was unable to actually leave my house, go outdoors, to finally transitioning now to be able to walk the one block over here and returning to our regular schedule on This Is Hell of live 80-minute shows three days a week, Monday through Wednesday, plus a Patreon podcast on Thursdays. I thought it would not only be fun and easy to go back to doing the show, I figured it would be a huge relief. Instead, getting back into the swing of things has been far more challenging than I imagined. And I'm already looking forward to the long Memorial Day weekend, but more important than any problems I am having going from hospitalization to recovery to back here in the studio, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell? And do we have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question? This week's question from hell is, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Oh, that's a real happy, fun time story. Yes, I do think we have some new responses, although I will have to review those All right. during the interview. All right, so we'll have those uh, more of your answers following our conversation with Dominic Boyer. The person with our favorite answer to this week's Question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support, and that you can get a discount on all of our merchandise by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon podcast at Patreon. 
patreon.com slash this is hell. All Patreon patrons get a secret code word that they can use to get a discount on all of our stuff. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. Or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff incubates live on the radio. I have no idea what that means, but I don't think we need a seven-second delay for that. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following Dominic on the major problem with constant economic growth. Again, the question from hell is, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? What new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? You can email us, as always, at chuck at thisishell.com with your guest or topic suggestions, comments on the show, constructive or destructive criticism, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. And Lindsay, we got an email from Greg K. And, uh, well, Greg had emailed us a couple of times while I was hospitalized and recovering with the... He was sending me very kind messages like, we love you, Chuck. We need you to stay with us. Greg's most recent email has the subject line, Lindsay of Chuck, I'm not a stalker as far as I know. And among other topics, it's about you. So (laughs) you have that to look forward to. Greg writes, dear Chuck, again, so glad you're on the mend. And as so many of us who love you have said so far, take your time to make sure you fully recover. In your absence, all of your producers have been upholding the This Is Hell standard in a way which should make you very, very proud. One producer in particular, Lindsay, spelling correctly? Gore, spelling correctly? He's asking if he's giving the correct spelling, invited listeners to contact her on social media during a recent podcast. However, she did not provide any contact information, and I haven't been able to find any for her on the web. On the web. There's a term I haven't heard for a while. Probably because I don't even know if I have her name correctly. Uh, Perhaps she regretted her invitation and has changed her mind, which I completely understand. If she is still willing to be contacted by listeners, could you please forward my email to her and let her decide if she wishes to be contacted by this particular listener on social media? It's my hope that you still remember me as the house on the rock guy, as your enjoyment of that answer to that particular question from hell was one of, if not the highlights of my extremely limited public life. Love, Greg. So first, Greg, I apparently did not wait long enough to recover because I was physically unable to do the show earlier this week after my back went out. I also did not exercise or sleep enough, so absolutely I should have taken more time to heal, slept more, and exercised more. But that would take something called discipline and another thing called patience, a couple of things that uh, I'm not that great at. Thanks to Alex, Jerry, Sebastian Vooper, Dan Hill, and Lindsay for doing such a great job covering for me over the last few months. Listeners loved hearing your choices of hand-picked interviews from our archives that you shared on the show while I was out. So, Lindsay, do you still want listeners to contact you? And do you have contact information if you do want them to contact you? 
You know, I knew that I wasn't providing very good information at that time, but I figured if anybody really wanted to contact me, that they would try hard enough and get to you. And so, yeah, totally. I'll totally hear from Greg. You know, I'm just a little, I like to be a little anonymous. I'm saying my whole name and neighborhood I live on on the radio, you know. But uh, yeah, my last name is Gory, G-O-R-R-Y. And my first name is spelled with an E, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. Lindsay.gory at gmail.com if you want to email me. There you go, lindsay.gory at gmail.com. And I'll forward you Greg's email anyway, just so you can contact him directly if you'd like to. Thanks for sharing that with me, Chuck. (laughs) No problem. Finally, the question from hell to which Greg gave the winning answer way back in September of last year was what are you having second thoughts about? What are you having second thoughts about? And Greg's winning answer was the house on the rock. So for those of you who do not know, the House on the Rock is a Wisconsin tourist trap. I mean, what am I saying? Tourism attraction and destination. And if you say something bad about House on the Rock on a radio show, live stream, or podcast, you're bound to disappoint some listeners, as we did last year when we selected Greg's answer to the question from hell. We also got an email from Dylan, who writes, Hello, I'm a mechanic and CNC artist from Central Florida. I've been listening to the show for over eight years now and wanted to show support in my own way. I want to make some metal This Is Hell art and send them your way at no cost. I've done a few of my for my uh, favorite shows like Red Menace, which I've heard of but I've never listened to, and two actual guillotine blades for another show. I want to know about that other show. I was thinking of doing one of the This Is Hell globe backlit with red LED and few more with uh, some slogans and sayings on them. If you're at all interested, please send me some black and white. Color works, but black and white is better. Images of the This Is Hell logo and any other ideas you may have. Also, uh, can I send them to the address on your website? Of course you can, and everybody can see our address right there at thisishell.com when they click on contact. Thank you, and please get feeling better. Dylan from Deep South Hell. We also got an email from Dylan today saying that uh, he works at this company that allows him to make his own art on his own time, and he does work for people who are on the left who live in Florida and don't want to walk into a metal shop saying, hello. I'm a socialist anarchist, and I would love to be on the, uh, have you do some work for me. And that would make me feel very uneasy walking into a Florida welding shop to ask them to do that. So that sounds absolutely amazing, Dylan. Thank you so much for the offer. And when we receive Dylan's work in the mail, we will absolutely and immediately share images of his work. Thanks again, Dylan. This is very cool and generous. By the way, for those of you who do not know, and I did not know until I asked my girlfriend who knows this kind of stuff, Dylan described himself as a CNC artist, which stands for Computerized Numerical Control. I was tired of bugging my girlfriend about it as she was busy working. So what I found online was the website uh, for Goodwin University in East East Hartford, Connecticut, which describes CNC machining as a computerized manufacturing process in which pre-programmed software and code controls the movement of production equipment. And if you still don't know what that means, again, we'll share images online when the sign from Dylan Arrives. Coming up, liberalism causes climate change. We'll tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, 
What new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? What new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? And we'll have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. This week, Jeff incubates live on the radio. Live radio is better. Bumper stickers should be issued, of course. Live from the United States, where waste is described as luxury and oligarchs are called entrepreneurs. This is how the idea that we can only have freedom, liberty, justice, and opportunity by funding it through industrialization and constant economic growth has been devastating to the planet. You know, the planet we all live on and depend upon for our very survival, which means we have to choose between a constantly growing economy and a constantly withering environment. What's needed, as our guest will argue, is the new ethics of degrowth, like Understanding luxury as not something to be pursued, but something wasteful that should be avoided. Here to help us have a better understanding of degrowth, a notion that always faces bipartisan dismissal. Our guest is anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the NEMA magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dominic. Hey, Chuck, how you doing? Great. It's great to have you on the show. And more surprisingly, you've actually been listening to the show for quite a long time. I have. And I'm just so glad you're back, Chuck. And you're sounding great. And the energy level is high. And, you know, I don't know how you're feeling internally, but, uh, you know, it's just really great to, to see you back on the mic again. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. You can find out more about Dominic at DominicBoyer.org. That's B-O-Y-E-R. You can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic Boyer. So you begin by writing a new eco-liberal political consensus is struggling to be born, a consensus whose commitment to a truly sustainable modernity might well prove resilient to the authoritarian nationalist and collectivist overtures, gaining signal strength and ground troops around the world. But it has a long and difficult road ahead of it and a paradox at its heart. So I guess we should start out at what is eco-liberalism? To what extent is it currently being engaged in or pursued, especially by policymakers here in the United States and more generally in the global north or western economies? So what is it and are people pursuing it? Well, uh, Chuck, you know, I want to start where you started in your in your intro talking about neoliberalism a little bit, too, because I think, you know, one of the the questions is after the 2008 uh, economic crash that I think really was an emperor's new clothes moment for neoliberalism, showing that there was really, you know, even to the people who weren't paying attention began to understand something was seriously wrong. Uh, you know, it's interesting that we haven't subsequently had, you know, something of the scale of neoliberalism coming along to sort of say, this is the next chapter of liberalism, or this is, you know, the socialist alternative we want. And we've certainly been having a lot of fascism running around recently. So uh, we're in this really interesting political time and I think that in places, I'll say, I'll say less in the United States. I mean, you really saw with the stalling of the Build Back Better plan and, you know, the Green New Deal, which everyone was really excited about for a minute, but then has, has withered subsequently. I don't think that the U.S. is the best example of what I'm describing as eco-liberalism. But if you look at Europe, for example, I think there where you see efforts like uh, the European climate law, the, the European uh, new Green New Deal. I mean, these are uh, efforts that are trying to reconcile a long history of industrial capitalism with ecological sustainability. So that's that's what it is in a nutshell. Uh, and the question is whether that can work. I mean, I think that's a big question. 
So you were just saying, though, that in 2008, with the crash that we had within the financial system and with the housing bubble bursting, we started to question neoliberalism. I, I, I totally agree with you, but it doesn't seem like neoliberalism has really changed that much. You say it's the emperor's new clothes kind of situation, but you know we are seeing, due to the pandemic, we're seeing these supply chain problems. They're are very much the outcome of globalization and neoliberalism. Uh, you, you look at what's happening with with Ukraine and Russia and the impact that that's having on food distribution to northern Africa because of globalization. You look at the situation with Abbott and the problems with the baby formula. All of these should be huge red flags that neoliberalism and on top of that, the globalization of neoliberalism are failing. So to you, what explains why that kind of criticism, what, you know, we don't even use the word neoliberalism in any kind of media analysis or any news that you see on TV. To you, what explains why that that whole process still continues despite its many challenges? I mean, it's such a great question, Chuck. And it is, I'm sure you're right that it has a lot to do with the media and the very, very uh, diluted and thin kinds of political analysis that were offered, uh, which, as you said, you know, does fundamentally even misunderstands what terms like liberalism are and where they come from historically. And so they're really not that helpful. But um, I think, you know, if you look back to the early days of the neoliberal consensus, and I'm really talking about the Clintonism of the 1990s, when suddenly, you know, the so-called left also uh, jumped on board with the neoliberal model, not just in the US, but in many countries around the world, there was this moment, I mean, it was after the fall of the of the Berlin Wall, and the end of the Cold War, and people, you know, people were talking about the end of history, and so on and so forth. And I think at that time, there was a real organic sensibility that this neoliberalism had something positive to offer. If you flash forward through, I think, the many, many tragedies and, and terrible policy decisions of the 1990s and the 2000s, the invasions of the Middle East, you get to the late 2000s. And with that crash, I think, you know, it, it, it proved to, you know, to those who had been on the sidelines skeptical about it, you know, that they were right. And I think it also revealed that there sort of was no future to this. I really feel like neoliberalism, you're right, there's still a lot of uh, uh, sort of institutional inertia with it, but there's no real future to it either. And that's kind of this odd moment we're living in where we're all on this ghost ship, which is heading somewhere. Uh, we don't know where. And meanwhile, at, in an organic way, socialism is back and fascism is back. The, the Precisely the forces that liberalism thought it had beat, you know, in, in 1945 and 1989 are now back on the political scene and gaining strength again. And I think that, um, you know, the one that obviously concerns me the most is, is the authoritarianism, the fascism uh, resurgent again, because I think what's happening is people who are angered about their dispossession from neoliberalism are often being, uh, you know, encouraged to funnel that through these very right-wing projects of populism and and, you know, down here in Texas, this little part of hell that I live in, you know, obviously, you know, theocratic uh, authoritarianism, too. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think I think it's an inertial problem. But I do think as somebody who who also likes to try to think optimistically about the future that you have also for uh, the first time in my life, um, an incredibly diverse and resurgent left-wing politics all over the world that are doing amazing things. And sometimes they're doing amazing things only at a small scale, but that doesn't mean that we should discount them because in fact, sometimes these cooperative projects, the solidarity economy projects that I would associate with the most effective parts of the degrowth movement are actually really transforming people's lives. 
So is equal eco-liberalism, is that an attempt at a balance, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, at a, at a balancing act between continued industrialism and addressing climate change? Is it both pro-industrialism and anti-climate change, and are continued industrialism and combating climate change necessarily in contradiction with one another? Well, that's exactly right, Chuck. Uh, you know, I think I think we could we probably hear this more often described as green capitalism, but I think green capitalism is such a contradictory concept that I almost that's why I kind of want to reject it in favor of thinking about eco liberalism, which is exactly this effort to find a way to harmonize the ongoing development and progress of industrial capitalism with some kind of ecological sustainability. And, you know, what I try to argue in the article is that it's there, they, they really is unlikely to work minus some kind of magical technological fix. And this is what always the focus is on is finding this magical technological fix that allows us to have it all. You know, whether that is, you know, nuclear fusion technology, which when I was 10 years old, people said it was 20 years away. And now I'm 50 years old and people still say it's 20 years away, that sort of thing, right? Uh, Cordycopian abundance of clean energy. That means we don't have to worry about, you know, waste and, and global heating anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that, you know, there are a lot of people want to believe and a lot of people in the sort of center left really want to believe that there is a way to fix this technologically. And that's always been the game liberalism has been playing since the beginning is focusing on what I call its one true love of industry, you know, labor plus technology, and trying to use that as a pretext for all of its other forms of dispossession. Uh, and we can, you know, go right back to the early, you know, origins of European colonialism to look at how, you know, this idea that, you know, technology is a kind of gift from God, essentially, gives us uh, supposedly the divine right to, to dispossess the indigenous peoples of the world from their land because they weren't doing enough with it. They weren't making it productive enough. And, and it's the Europeans who are coming with this industry and, 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 and to, to accomplish that. And liberalism, early liberalism is a kind of philosophical expression of that. You write that today's nascent eco-liberal consensus is exemplified by the recent passage of the European climate law, a binding framework for bringing Europe's economy and society to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. But, you know, uh, they be, uh, people like the Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth, they've been critical of net zero promises for the future. And an investigation by the Washington Post last November found that those promises, like the ones made at the UN climate negotiations, those were all based on faulty data. So is net zero and no net emissions enough? There's a lot of mischief with those numbers, Chuck, as you can imagine. And I've been looking at some of the scholarly studies on this phenomenon that's known as decoupling. And decoupling is the ability to uh, separate uh, GDP growth, let's say, from growth in carbon emissions. So the part of the, 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 the premise of eco-liberalism is we can figure out a way to decouple growth so we can continue to grow our economies from emissions uh, growth. And I think that that is being shown for the most part to be uh, a phantom. 
Uh, there was a study in 2021 that was looking at quite a few, mostly high carbon national economies, I think it was about 116, and it found that only 14 of them had been able to decouple GDP growth from carbon emissions growth. But it also found in the same study that 22 other countries that had managed to decouple in the past had now recoupled again, so that their, their, their GDP growth was tracking upwards, uh, as well as their carbon emissions growth. And that shows that even, you know, so sort of coming to a moment of temporary decoupling is not necessarily progress, that it requires immense vigilance and pressure. And it really shows, I think, the limits of this green growth model that we hear about. Oh, to what degree is that decoupling possible with green technology like the ones that we always hear in the media, which are wind and solar? Can that decoupling happen through green tech like the promises of sequestration of carbon to keep it from re-entering the atmosphere? Can green tech fully resourced, fully financed, decouple economic growth from resource use? I want to be clear that the problem, as I see it, is not with the technology. It's really with the the capitalist system into which that technology is being born and implemented. Uh, you know, where we are today is that, you know, we have 35 gigawatts of new wind and solar and other renewable projects coming onto grids around the world uh, this year, which is great. I mean, that's a huge amount of energy. But the problem is, is that the world's power demand in this same period of time is projected to increase by around 100 gigawatts. So even with this immense uh, new investments in wind and solar, we still find ourselves, you know, falling further and further behind when we're looking towards sustainability criteria. And so, you know, the reason for this is, is not that the technologies are not effective at offering low carbon energy, because they are, we know they are. But the problem is, is that we exist within a system that is relentlessly, almost maniacally growing itself. Uh, and that every, you know, and this again goes back to media messaging, every time we hear about uh, uh, economic health and vitality in this country, it's always linked to this concept of growth. If something isn't growing, then there's something wrong. And that's not just here, I think it's around the world. So uh, that that growth uh, imperative, I think, is not being driven by ordinary citizens, but rather by, uh, you know, the overlords of industry and, and whether it's finance, uh, the financial industry or the, the conventional commodity production industries that want to see, you know, increases in profits. And that's, you know, the core logic of capitalism. It's good. Even Marx would admit this. Capitalism is really good at producing useful stuff. The problem is it doesn't care about producing useful stuff. It wants to produce profits. So it's producing helpful technologies, but it's not uh, producing helpful technologies in a way that they would actually be optimized to sustain themselves. Now, if you can imagine a non-capitalist economy, whether at a small scale or a larger scale, it might be possible that wind and solar could deliver precisely the kind of sustainability we want, and even maybe the sustainable uh, modern life with some of the luxuries and conveniences that we care about uh, could be offered too, but it would have to be taken out of this relentless growth engine, if that makes sense. You were just saying how even Marx admitted that capitalism, that uh, this market theory can actually lead to the production of goods that we could use, goods that are actually good for society. But I saw this article over, oh, geez, this is while I was sick, and so it just made me more sick. I was, <laughs> I was reading this article in the New York Times about the global supply chain, and it was about the difficulty this one small company in Mississippi was having in getting their goods to the market, either because of wages within their own community 
immunity or just supply chain problems with getting their goods back from China here to the United States. But the good, the product that he was making, it was plastic cubes that had lights in them. So they were like a light-up ice cube that you could put in your drink. And at no point during that article did they have any discussion of how this is a product we don't need. <laughs> so, so what happens when we don't realize that the products that are having a difficulty of getting into the global supply chain are not only something that we don't need, but they, you know, depress wages. They're likely done in a way that are made in a way that is uh, not good for the environment or good for the workers. What happens when we don't recognize the wasteful products that so much of our globalization is based upon? Exactly. And this is, you know, you, you mentioned plastic cubes and, you know, the whole growth of the petroplastics industry uh, after the Second World War and the sort of invasion or colonization of all aspects of our lives with plastics that's relentless to this day is a great example of that. Um, you know, there's a surplus of a material commodity, which is a byproduct of, you know, petroleum manufacture that people want to find a way to monetize and to turn into capital. And so they do that by producing lots and lots of things. And, and many times, you know, these are things that are, are uh, basically uh, much less durable and effective versions of, of older products that might have been manufactured uh, with with an idea of their persistence and usefulness over a long period of time. I mean, there's a million examples of things made of plastic that just break, and you know, so it's it's you know, it's it's a great example of how the the wastefulness is internal to the system, as you're saying. It's not something that is just a kind of flaw in the pro in the in the project. It's actually it's sort of an essential feature of how this particular operating system works. And uh, you know, I think that. Andre Gortz, who's somebody I mentioned in the article, I think people are interested in, de in degrowth. They should go back and read uh, Gortz's book, Ecology is Politics, because it's going it, to, although it was written 50 years ago, it seems incredibly contemporary in terms of what he's saying. And just very commonsensical that, you know, this system as it exists, this uh, endless growth capitalist system producing more and more waste wasteful luxury goods uh, that really don't they don't they don't actually you know produce a better quality of life I mean this is the key point it, it's one thing if you said we're using all this energy and our lives are just getting so so much better and more and more people are benefiting uh, from these goods if that were the case then I think you could make an argument that this economy there would be a reason to try to save it in its current form but the the fact of the matter is it only works for a very small uh, group of people well and even those people have you know are hoarding more resources than they have any concept of what to do with <laughs> and so you know um, it's a situation that is both unsustainable and profoundly uh, inequitable at the same time uh, so, you know, and we've known this for 50 years and 50% of, you know, cumulative carbon emissions have happened in the past 30 years since we've been hearing about climate change, right? We seem to be in a world which we should know better. And yet, you know, as you've, we've been talking about before that we've just continued to sort of stay on the treadmill of an obviously uh, broken and ecocidal uh, path. So what is the impact on the economy, either here in the United States or globally, if economic growth has stopped to address climate change? Are our choices fighting climate change or having economic success, the kind that allows us to have the creature comforts that we've come used to? You know, I, I think one of the 
one of the ways that degrowth has been essentially sidelined out of the mainstream political conversation, which you know in many countries is between some kind of eco-liberal left or center and then a conservative or neoliberal uh, right. Uh, one of the ways that degrowth has been sidelined is by saying, well, these people just want to go back to primitive conditions. They want to you know, allow civilization to collapse. And I really want to push back against that because degrowth is many things, but I don't think uh, you hear people actually calling for uh, the end of modernity and, and, and the end of civilization. You know, it's not a primitivist uh, way of thinking at all, but it's about essentially trying to um, uh, rethink where growth is beneficial and where it isn't. So uh, it's about, you know, trying to realign the, uh, the economic system with our ecological constraints on the one hand. And so that means, you know, downscaling ecologically destructive industries like industrial beef, for example, would be a good example. But it's also uh, about creating new economic opportunities by redistributing labor. Um, by, you know, Gortz was fond of saying, you know, 20-hour work week, you know, yes, there's maybe less work to go around, but if we share it equitably, then everyone's okay. Uh, Reskilling labor towards lower carbon industries, uh, ending planned obsolescence, so we're not having to produce more and more of this plastic waste material. Um, all sorts of uh, ways of sort of rethinking or redesigning economic relationships in a way that we are going to uh, create greater kinds of equity uh, within our populations and equity of opportunity being a really key part of that. And also just you know, reducing the obsession with um, sort of mindless consumption that is something we're encouraged to do in all sorts of ways, right? You know, going back to the media and advertising and the rest of it, yes, this idea of a thirst, constant thirst for novelty, even if the novelty is just like a new color or, you know, a new shell on, on the old product, something like that. Uh, getting away from that mentality back towards, you know, persistent durable goods, um, less work. And if I can, you know, sort of put my climate communicator hat on for a second, you know, a lot of times, uh, even in the climate movement, we find ourselves talking about austerity and, and about giving things up and the need to sacrifice. And I think that that works, you know, well for some people that messaging actually, I think, you know, works for people who are highly disciplined and kind of get off on having less <laughs> people who like to diet, that sort of people, I think that works for but I think, you know, we also sometimes do a bad job of, of selling um, a future that's actually in some ways a, a much easier life, a much happier life with less worry and less stress because uh, you're more taken care of uh, by the social bonds that we set up. Uh, you get to work less, you get to sleep more. I mean, these should be selling points for the future rather than things to be feared. So, so when people talk about degrowth as a kind of recipe for uh, barbarity and collapse, I say, you know, you're thinking only within the mindset of, 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 of a kind of capitalist worldview. And with perfect timing this past weekend, I saw a 60 minute infomercial on the local ABC affiliate here in Chicago on Saturday or Sunday afternoon, time when nobody's watching TV whatsoever, on how awesome NFTs are. Perfect, oh my God. perfect timing there by the local <laughs> ABC affiliate. But one of the people who was on the show that was promoting cryptocurrency and NFTs, 
he said that the only reason that we buy things is to impress others. Is that the kind of cultural shift that we have to have here in the United States in order to combat climate change, to not have this idea that your purchases are to impress others? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, as an anthropologist, I can I can confirm that there are many cultures in which, um, you know, uh, people like showy things. There there are uh, many cultures that like spectacles and performances. This is not just true of of the modern West or or the global North. But you know, I do think that there is something of a sense of proportion that's been lost, and that really is you know the relentless pursuit of spectacle, the relentless pursuit of acquisition and money and profit. And again, to go back to, to old Marx, you know, um, he probably would say that this is not really a matter of individual failure. It's not about individual moral failure. It's about uh, a class system that's developed and those class systems have ideologies and they have uh, political institutions that are shaped and edu educational institutions that are shaped that tend to reproduce these same messages. And that's one of the hard things to, to grapple with if you're, if you're, you know, hoping for movement towards the kind of revolutionary um, politics that we need. Uh, is, you know, you know, what to do with people who, you know, essentially have been just brought up in uh, this, this pretty um, polluted system. And they're not bad people, right? They're not, they're, they're but they're dupes in a way that's really unfortunate. And uh, it's, a, it, when you scale it to the level of a whole population, it means you have lots and lots of people invested in maintaining the status quo and extremely afraid of any kind of change to the status quo, because they've learned the rules of this game and they don't know the rules of the game that's coming. So again, another critique, you know, I hear about degrowth and this is, you know, really from, from people, I think, who kind of, represent the eco-liberal position is, well, who's going to decide? Who's going to decide what's degrowing? You know, what government is going to tell people this and that? And then they always bring up the yellow vest revolution in France and say, look, you know, here's a case of, you know, elites uh, trying to, um, you know, make their climate initiatives, but, you know, infuriating uh, the general public along the way. And I, I don't think it's that kind of zero-sum game. I, I do think that there are ways in which through movements, and I think social movements, political movements at the grassroots level are extremely important in this, you can build solidarity. And, and the places that have gone the farthest in degrowth, and I'll single out, uh, especially in Spain, and in particularly in Barcelona and Catalonia, where these degrowth theories are not just theories, they're actually being put into practice, uh, practice in a very robust cooperative movement. These are places where, you know, the, long before they started to create their cooperatives, they were sort of building solidarity and, and helping to inform one another. And, and those politics are so crucial. And I do, I mean, Chuck, I'm sure you have, you know, some of the same, um, you know, concerns that I do about the depth of the, how possible this is in a place like the United States. But I know that, you know, um, it's there, it's there. And I believe it's, it's, it's growing in a good way. Here's a good, here's an example of good growth. We are speaking with anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the NEMA magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. This is a fascinating article, and all of our listeners should check it out because we're only going to be able to skim the surface on it, even though we're going to be talking to Dominic for 45 minutes. You can find out more about Dominic at DominicBoyer.org, and you can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic 
Boyer. You write that in his second treatise, John Locke describes labor as intrinsic to the establishment of property, quote, as much land as a man tills, plants, improves, cultivates, and can use the product of, so much is his property. You add, but not even all hard work is created equal, much as Adam Smith would later echo in the theory of opulence, technology combined with labor, in other words, industry, was the decisive formula for creating value out of the natural resources God gifted humanity. Technology functioned, according to the philosophy of the time, as a sign of grace, dividing the world into those with the rational wherewithal to make the most of divine gifts, European men mostly, and those who allowed their gifts to lie fallow and go to waste. There is an ancient symbiotic relationship between liberal political ideology and the industrial growth orientation that is usually glossed over as the internal logic of capitalism. Buried in growth is the pursuit, not just of profit, but also of grace and above all the moral right to accumulate resources and exert dominion. So is it possible to abandon liberalism? And can conservatives who have may have stumbled upon our conversation, rejoice in this problem with liberalism, because many are inundated with, you know, media definitions rather than classic definitions of what small L liberalism is. Yeah, it's, it's one of the weird things about the United States, particularly that because of the way the the system of governance was set up that essentially you know we re- really you can only functionally have two parties right because you know 50 percent plus one vote is a winner take all scenario here in the more modern democracies the ones that were founded in europe especially in the 20th century you have these more proportional systems and and there what's nice is that you know you have let's say in germany you have a neoliberal party that is clearly a neoliberal big business party it's not pretending to be a christian conservative party that sort of thing and the neoliberal party gets about the 10 percent of the votes you would expect it to get because it's only in the interests of the sort of wealthy industrial class right so so you, you can sort of see where they're coming from and there's a kind of authenticity to it that's kind of compelling when you compare it to the united states case you have all sorts of things being mushed together into these political parties that are that are often internally very contradictory. And one of those, I think, is Christian conservatism on the one hand in the United States, and you know, big business, ruthless, uh, um, predatory capitalist interests on the other hand. And in another world, those aren't necessarily always aligned with one another, and you could actually expose the cracks in those more easily. Um, a true a true Christian conservative ethos, I think, is one that ought to be amenable to ecological issues. And we've seen this in a lot of other countries. You know, at the at the root of conservative is conservare. It's to protect. It's to, it's to maintain. And what's more important to maintain than our earth systems that nourish us and, and allow us to, to live and to thrive? So, so how it has become the case that, you know, the, the Christian conservatives are pushing a pol- an ecocidal politics is a real tragedy unto itself. And if there was a way to separate those interests or to drive a wedge between those interests and the big business interests, I think, you know, you could make some progress. And I'll give an example. I have a colleague uh, used to teach at Texas Tech named Catherine Hayhoe, who is an ev- evangelical Christian and also a climate scientist, which sounds very contradictory. 
but in her work, uh, which she, she deserves all sorts of credit for, she would go to these evangelical communities, like sometimes very small rural uh, churches across Texas, and get people talking about conservation care and getting them to see that, you know, the, the issue of conservation and climate change oughtn't to be politicized in the way it is and polarized in the way it is, that there's actually a way to reconcile Christian ethics uh, with, uh, with uh, ecological care. And so, you know, I, again, I, you know, I, I see the, the point you're bringing up because oftentimes that kind of nuance gets lost in our political conversations, but there are these opportunities there um, for, for change and maybe for developing new alliances over time. And I have to hope that they will, because I also find it difficult to imagine, especially in this country, with its, you know, deep and very powerful evangelical uh, communities, it'll be hard to sort of mount any kind of sustained just transition, I think, without some kind of uh, uh, partnership with those communities. You write of degrowth's proponents. Uh, mainstream liberals and many eco-liberals uh, continue to laugh them off. But the laughter is increasingly nervous, a recognition that degrowth is likely on the horizon one way or another, either through collapse of the current civilizational trajectory or through some of kind of managed transition to widespread industrial and economic downscaling. So is degrowth one way or the other inevitable? Do we need to choose if it comes about through our own volition or the climate imposes it upon us? I mean, I personally, Chuck, I personally think it's inevitable. Um, a lot of people would disagree with me with that, but I think it's inevitable. And I think the only way to keep the current system going is the kind of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, like, let's get off the planet and keep the, sh the show going, you know, and take it from planet to planet and moon to moon uh, as we continue to expand our resource frontiers. I think that's the only way the current system uh, or the current trajectory could be managed. And, um, you know, but the truth of it is, you know, we have just this one planet. And I don't think that uh, I'm, I'm not as optimistic that we're going to be establishing, you know, robust colonies on other any other planets anytime soon. And even if we did, I don't think they would be particularly happy places to be because we're, you know, adapted to this planet, not to Mars, not to Venus, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think if you accept that, then you, you sort of have to accept the fact that, okay, we have to end growth somehow. How do we do that? What's the best way to do that that is limits the amount of misery to humans and non-humans along the way? I mean, where we are now, as you know, Chuck, is a world in which we have, uh, you know, heat waves in India where, you know, birds are dropping out of the sky dead uh, and people are dying in the streets. And this is just the beginning of, uh, of a trajectory that will intensify and get worse as the century goes on. And more and more places will come under pressure uh, from heat waves and cyclones and flooding and drought. Uh, and uh, forced migration, and all, all, there's a lot of terrible stuff coming if we can't figure out a way to quickly reverse the gross pass. And so I truly hope, again, speaking just personally, that we can find the way uh, to avoid the collapse scenario. But I have to say that given the persistence of the status quo, right now the collapse scenario is looking more, more, um, more likely to me than the sort of managed sustainable degrowth model. But again, I think you know, we can't become the doomers who say, well, you know, because this world is broken, let's just give up. And, you know, we only live one life and let's not worry about it. I think that that is a really pernicious position to be occupying too. Uh, we have to do what we can. We have to do what we can to, to heal and repair a, a world that's, you know, greatly in need of uh, a reparative politics. 
So are people like Elon Musk, like Jeff Bezos, are they attractive to even liberals within the Democratic Party? Because they promise that we will not have to change our lifestyles, that we can have economic growth moving forward uh, despite climate change, that we do not have to change to fight climate change. Exactly. I think that's exactly it. And, you know, there are a lot of, I think, you know, there are a lot of podcasts that that deal with uh, energy transitions and, you know, green energy, renewable energy that are out there. And on almost all of them, the, the way this is described is, is a tremendous opportunity. Uh, look, you know, we're going to have all of these new jobs. We're going to create an immense amount of wealth. Uh, we're going to be able to, you know, shift easily from the petroleum economy to a renewable economy while everyone, you know, stays happy and, and things go on the way they've been going on. We continue to use massive amounts of energy. We continue to indulge in all sorts of wasteful excess, as you've said, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The, the show just keeps going on. And I think that is the problem. And I've studied in, in my anthropological work uh, in, in Southern Mexico, the densest corridor of wind power development on land in the world, uh, in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. And uh, that land that's being used to develop these wind parks is largely indigenous land. And it was fascinating and really, really illuminating to talk to the indigenous political leaders about their experience of the coming of wind power, because they looked they sort of talked back to this uh, language of energy transition and global good. And they said, we don't see any transition here. We see another industry coming to take our land from us and to exploit our resources. And what are they doing with all that energy? They're building you know, more Walmarts and they're building more uh, Heineken factories. And they're using that energy to, 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 to uh, advance those industrial projects. And so, you know, you can do renewable energy politics in a way that maintains the extractivist and dispossessive politics of the industrial, you know, fossil fuel era really easily. And unfortunately, a lot of projects are, 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 are sort of uh, coming into the world that way. But that doesn't mean that they have to be that way. And that's that's what I think is, you know, the urgent point to to take home is that you know, there there is a way towards of, of using these technologies and of, of engaging uh, the project of energy transition that is not the Elon Musk vision of it. That is not the, you know, we just kind of keep doing what we're doing, except we shift our power sources from fossil fuels to solar and wind. Uh, I think we have to, we have to, we, if we really want to deal with the problem that's causing us to have to build wind parks in the first place, we have to deal with the, uh, the, the, the growth obsessed, uh, accumulation-obsessed system that's at the core of this all. So why does degrowth for the North not mean deprivations for the global South or those who are even you know, facing inequality here within the United States? Because an argument I've always heard is, why doesn't the global South get the opportunity to enjoy the luxuries the global North now enjoys? Why doesn't degrowth mean more sacrifices by those who already sacrifice on a daily basis for the wealthy North? Right. And I think that, you know, I'm not I, I really don't want to paint the degrowth community with a with in just one color, because there's so many different ideas and voices and perspectives in this movement. But I will say that I've never heard anybody say we want to deprive the global south of the uh, of of the opportunities and indeed some of the luxuries that the global north has enjoyed uh, largely at the rest of the world's expense. So it's not that people um, want to sort of stop the, the, the whole 
model of uh, advancement of, of development and say, okay, well, you guys, you know, unfortunately just don't get your turn. Uh, no, that's not usually what people are, are, are fighting for. What they're fighting for is for the global north to rein itself in. And so there you could say, yes, all right, well, maybe we are talking about less uh, wasteful use of, of energy and resources. But the thing I would say to the logic or the argument that this is sacrifice, Chuck, is how much sacrifice is it really? Like how much sacrifice is it really to get rid of those lighted plastic cubes you mentioned? Is it really, you know, is that really a form of sacrifice? Is it really going to deprive you of, uh, you know, utility as the classic economists would argue? Are you really going to be uh, deprived of your liberty and happiness by the lack of those plastic cubes being in the world? I'm going to say probably not. A whole other project that my partner, Simony Howe, and I did with uh, Daniel Donna Cohen a few years back was called Low Carbon Pleasure, Low Carbon Leisure, uh, which is a, kind of a stage show we did in Austin, but you know, it's part of a broader product project, which is sort of reminding, to help remind ourselves that most of the best things in life are low carbon anyway. Most of the, the things we really enjoy and um, and that that nourish us spiritually and physically in the world are not things that are ruining the planet. In fact, you know, the thrills of a kind of a petroculture, as I like to think of it, of a culture built around petroleum, um, you know, most of those like, you know, riding, you know, in a fast car down a highway, uh, okay, they're thrills, right? But they're not necessarily the kinds of pleasures that endure. And I think that's part of it, you know? Uh, we live in a very addicted society. We live in a very fossil fuel driven society as a lot of, you know, efforts at pain management and, and self-care through through drugs. And, you know, there's that great Henry Rollins thing where he said, you know, the, the, the American healthcare system is, you know, drugs and porn, you know, because it's people trying to self-medicate through through what they have at their at their disposal. But if you could imagine a society in which people didn't have to hustle constantly to, to make a living, in which they were more cared for, in which they had more time on their hands, um, I don't think they would be sort of craving the little plastic cubes. I'm sorry to use that as a metaphor, but, you know, what I mean. <laughs> yes, I do know what you mean. You mentioned uh, the writing of a past guest on our show who was fantastic on, on our show, uh, economic anthropologist Jason Hickel, who uh, wrote the book Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. And uh, you point out that Hickel joins eco-liberals in a fierce opposition to obvious scandals like ongoing fossil fuel subsidies and the massive energy waste associated with speculative instruments like crypto. He also offers a rough list of intermediary objectives for making this new civilization, including ending planned obsolescence, as you were mentioning earlier, limiting advertising, shifting from ownership to usership. What is meant by shifting from ownership to usership? Is this a shift away from individual rights being paramount because whether it's the far right or neoliberals that's either labeled as communist or anti-capitalist and in the United States both have bipartisan opposition it seems like uh, they don't really understand how this works I mean they always just focus on individual rights being paramount so what is meant by shifting from ownership to usership well, as you're saying, Chuck I mean private property rights are just absolute like bedrock you know uh, genetic material of the United States because it was founded in in the heyday of this classic liberal philosophy where private property rights were you know were the were the um, uh, the goal. Uh, the goal of a rising middle class trying to overthrow the aristocracy and establish its own economic and social power. And uh, you know again, private property 
such a funny thing. Like, you know, it, the whole concept of property, uh, historically, legal philosophy, you know, goes back to the idea of like owning the productive powers of the body, if you go back to Roman times. And so, you know, there's this sense that, you know, private property at some level is not just about the things that you have, but also about you know, owning your own capacities to, 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 to realize yourself in the world. And that, that's something that maybe, you know, is fine. You know, I think we, we don't want to deprive ourselves of liberty and autonomy entirely. But on the other hand, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that we can't also engage in complex cooperative economies and solidarity economies. In fact, I think we do it all the time, especially within our friend networks and our kin networks. I mean, these are things that are quite common that we share. Uh, and we, you know, we don't all have to buy our own cars if we figure out a nice way that we can share the one car in a, in a reasonable way. And does it require conversation? Yes. Does it require negotiation? Yes. These are not the strong suits of like frontier liberal mass masculinity to, to negotiate and, and to like, you know, maybe you have to be inconvenienced slightly about when you use the car, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's so much uh, actually more economically advantageous to just have the one car and share the costs than it is to try to do everything on your own. And again, this obsession with everyone having to accumulate a horde of things uh, on their own uh, to be able to, you know, sort of, uh, 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 you know, lord over them like some dragon sitting on its hoard uh, is is when you think about it, just a, a kind of a crazy idea and an idea that's so at odds with most of human history and most of human culture's ways of dealing with the world. That I think you know we have to also understand to what extent you know the the global north today, the modern west, the capitalist individuality are really like outliers. To, to human culture over time. And that's something that encourages me that one of the reasons I'm happy to be an anthropologist is to understand just how exceptionally weird our culture is compared to most human cultures. And that makes me think that at some point we're due for a reset. We're due for like a return to more cooperative, solidaristic economy uh, as our baseline. And that's something that, again, I, I see these really fascinating experiments in this across the world. And some of them are gaining strength. I mentioned the, uh, the cooperatives, uh, the energy and the um, automobile cooperatives in Barcelona now, Som Energia and Som Mobilitat. And these are, you know, uh, have enrolled, you know, tens of thousands of people in these projects. They're not that small scale anymore. They're, they're getting pretty big. And they are, among other things, teaching people how to sort of use, uh, use their resources more efficiently and how to share them more openly. And I just think that, that, is, that those are the kinds of politics we should be leaning into as we're imagining how to make a better future. So are those the degrowth ethics that you believe that we need to start embracing? I think so. I mean, and I think it's also important to note that this is not in any way to suggest that this should not be a project that's tolerant of multiple perspectives. I think it has to be intersectional. I think it has to be, again, a, 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 not one uh, monopolistic worldview that's being asserted to quiet down other ones, because that, of course, has also been a part of the history of, of political liberalism that's been really unfortunate, is its silencing of, you know, the voices of basically the non-white uh, property-owning man. Um, and so it can't be just the kind of new white property-owning man's perspective on the world, which again is part of my problem with the Elon Musk of the world. It feels like their model is very much, you know, my way or the highway, guys, you know, uh, take it or leave it. And I think this has to be something that develops uh, through a different kind of uh, ethics and, and, as you say, different, uh, different communicative 
uh, ethics and a different cooperative ethics. And um, so it, when Hickel says we don't have all the answers, I think that's that's a good place to be. Like we don't have the answers. This is something that's going to be made through working together, uh, and and in a way, kind of believing together and dreaming together too. That's where we should be right now. But committed to the goal of of getting out of this death spiral we're in. You also point out that you're not expecting eco-liberals to fall in love with degrowth, at least not right away, but perhaps they can develop a solid friendship based on their common cause to avoid the worst scenarios of environmental catastrophe. So considering the dismissiveness of degrowth that so many liberals have, why do you have any hopes for any kind of friendship with liberals? Yes, Chuck, that's a really good question. And it probably is my own utopianism bleeding through here. Uh, I, I just think it, I always think it's so much easier if you can find um, common purpose than if you're constantly fighting um, and maligning and, and sometimes caricaturing the people whose positions you don't agree with. I do think that there are people in the eco-liberal movement who really do embrace, you know, 75% of what degrowth people are after. And I think those people are people with which we can find common cause. And perhaps it's only because we're facing the existential uh, terror, uh, I can't think of another word for it, of climate change and all of the knock-on effects of that phenomenon, that we might actually be able to bring people to the table and say, listen, we have to, you know, we have to come to a way of managing a transition to avoid uh, uh, collapse. And that collapse, again, could be in the form of, you know, the a surge of kind of fascist theocratic politics, which unfortunately in this country is all too real a possibility. I mean, we're perilously close to that moment already. Uh, we don't need to get any closer. So maybe if we can all find a way to work together, uh, there could be a way to avert um, avert, you know, these were scenarios and build a broader uh, political mobilization. And, you know, so I'm not uh, politically speaking, like it's not, it's fun to be a purist. It's fun to be pious. Um, and I, I get it why it feels good to be right. But I also feel as though there has to be room for compromise. That has to be part of a kind of more collaborative political ethics going forward, uh, trying to find ways we can work together uh, on, on major problems. That's something that actually the United States has been capable of been doing in the past, at least. And I do hope that there's a way that we can avoid just devolution and, and some kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of coordinated way forward. But, you know, could I be wrong? Am I, am I likely to be wrong? Quite possibly, Chuck. I'll say quite possibly. <laughs> Yikes. So uh, <laughs> one last question for you, Dominic. We have been speaking with anthropologist Dominic Boyer, wrote the NEMA magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. Find out more about Dominic at DominicBoyer.org. And you can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic Boyer. Now, as you likely know, the our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And one of the things I've been thinking about over the last couple of months, two and a half months now since I've been out, because this is the last article, uh, the last thing I'd read and the last thing I'd researched before I was hospitalized, I could not even... It, three in the morning staring at a blank wall in a hospital bed and unable to sleep. Oh, my God. The thing I couldn't stop thinking about, and it's not your fault, I'm glad that you made me brought it up, uh, <laughs> is the, the way in which we are inundated with propaganda about senseless waste and purchases, how we are constantly being 
just imposed upon us this capitalist propaganda, this wasteful spending propaganda in order to keep consumerism going, which is the driving force of our economy and which provides jobs, even if it's somebody who makes stupid plastic ice cubes with lights in them providing jobs. <laughs> so, so must we, in order to uh, save the planet, if you will, must we not only recognize that this is propaganda, when you see a commercial on TV, recognize that this is propaganda for uh, the system within which we live, the system that is destroying our planet, must we stop celebrating wealth and the wealthy to save the planet does does that celebration of wealth that sub uh, that celebration of luxuries that celebration of things we don't need and the and the wealthy does that celebration is is that at the heart of what is causing climate change yes and i will say again go back and read andre gortz's ecology as politics as he talks exactly about the way in which the, the 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 system of capitalist inequality reproduces itself precisely through what you're describing by creating scarce and unattainable luxuries that then lower classes strive to to secure but the moment they've secured them there's new scarce unattainable luxuries that are being placed before them too so you have to stay on the treadmill you keep working it's like the lottery it's not a game you can win at right it's not it's not a good use of your time to to aspire to the life of opulence and wealth and as we know I mean, you know, from a million different scandal documentaries and true crime documentaries, these are mostly pretty miserable people, right? <laughs> they're miserable uh, to each other. They're, they're miserable on their own. And, you know, Bill Gates, you know, working 20 hours a day, uh, despite, you know, owning more money and resources than entire countries is obviously not to me a paradigm to be championed, right? This is a guy who's, who's just working himself to death. So, so again, to go back to this idea of what a degrowth ethics might look like, I think it really is about saying, here's the good thing about technology. Technology has advanced to a state where human beings have to work a lot less to live safely and to live comfortably than they ever have in all of human history. The, the economist Thomas Piketty, the French economist, uh, you know, makes this great point. There's never been so much capital in the history of the planet, probably so many useful things that are out there. We're just distributing them really badly. And one form of distribution or redistribution we have to engage in is giving people back their time. I mean, the social amount of labor that's needed to live a comfortable, safe and happy existence is very low compared to points in the past. Let's make use of that. Let's indulge in taking back our time. And, and that's a true, maybe the truest form of autonomy there is, is to have time at your disposal and to have the ability to rest and recharge and explore ideas. And, you know, God forbid, stare at the wall sometimes, Chuck, because every once in a while, right, that that's going to be, you know, <laughs> we're going to have those experiences uh, too. But, you know, I think, yes, it we, we, we have to give up on the cult of, of opulence. It, it's obsolete. It's obsolete. Uh, and uh, it's not it's not doing anything to to promote our happiness and find happiness in a humbler in a humbler world, which is which is abundant and accessible to us all in different ways. And I think that will ultimately lead to the, the happier, more just future. And is more sustainable than just the rush of going really fast down the road in a 
gas-powered car. So, Dominic, I really appreciate you being on the show. This article has been haunting me for the past two and a half months. I keep thinking about it, and I want all of our listeners to go check it out again. Do we exercise it? Do we get it out of your system? That's my hope, Chuck. Hell no. This is going to linger in my veins for a while. We've been speaking with anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the Nemo Magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. You can find out more about Dominic at DominicBoyer.org, and you can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic Boyer. And now that we have your contact information, you're screwed because I'm going to be bugging you for the rest of your life. Well, I love it, Chuck. I'm coming back again because if we haven't got this all worked out of your system yet, but we're going to wait until you're feeling, you know, ready, ready for it all. Because yeah. I I want to I echo the, the other uh, caring listeners who said, you know, take your time coming back. Because again, like, you know, you don't have to work yourself to the bone on the treadmill, man. Just, you know, <laughs> in, enjoy, enjoy your recovery to the extent that's possible. All right. Well, thank you, Dominic. I appreciate those kind words. And again, I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show. It really has been a pleasure. And this is exceptional work. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for inviting me, Chuck. Take care. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell if what you just heard from Dominic on liberalism's contributions to climate change. If that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. You can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. This week's question from hell what uh, new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? What new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? And I do believe that Lindsay may have some more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Lindsay. I do. Hot damn. This week's question from hell. What new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Marco G says the short reels pandemic. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Steve C says the endless NBA playoffs. (laughs) That is a pandemic. Neil C says Omicronic capitalism. All right. Jeffrey Yosefus Dorshan says, The new dance craze, the Victor Orban twist. Uh, And over on Twitter, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Gregory Gregory K says, The Peter pandemic. Oh, Jesus. Really? I don't know. Really? Really? Neoliberal dystopia says, what pandemic? There's a pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, at Rock Taster says, bloody frogs. <laughs> okay, Rock Taster <laughs> sees frogs as our problem. Uh, F Tweet Fitzgerald says, the collective pandemic of all the side effects from the pharmaceuticals advertised on the news. All right, that's a pandemic, all right. It's true. And Sam Skin Apostle says, smooth brain syndrome. (laughs) That sounds gross. 
All right, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? What new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff incubates live on the radio, uh, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that deep, deep debt, you can describe or you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast. Again, patreon.com slash this is hell becomes a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast with streams weekly and his podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell, as well as get a discount on all of our merchandise. On this week's Patreon, I will be explaining not only the physical challenges to getting back here in the studio to do the show three days a week live at thisishell.com Monday through Wednesday, plus the Patreon podcast on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell. But the mental, emotional, and what I discovered to be these social struggles, I discovered those this weekend, that such a transition poses in my life as well. Why is it so difficult to make this transition from hospitalization to whatever normal life is? Because this is hell, and unfortunately I've chosen to do a show about the hellish reality we all live in every day while Hiding from that reality, taking a break from the horrors we all face can be a relief. Re-entering that world, our world, can be daunting, despite the fact that I am escaping one hell of hospitalization for another hell of our world. Also on Patreon this week, we will be playing a December 2007 interview we did with someone who had an editorial about climate change in this week's New York Times, Ben Wallace-Wells. At the time, Ben was a contributing editor to Rolling Stone. He's apparently moved up the chain in the media up to the New York Times. And he was on back then to discuss his most recent writing at the time, How America Lost the War on Drugs. After 35 years and $500 billion, drugs are as cheap and plentiful as ever, an anatomy of a failure. Again, that was only after 35 years of the drug war. And as that conversation took place 15 years ago, the war on drugs is now at least 50 years old, as old as Dominic is, and the war on drugs is still failing. One of the most disturbing points Ben makes is the war on drugs being an abstract war, a war where you do not actually meet your enemy on a battlefield and duke it out to see who wins. Yet that abstract war concept was normalized and seen as something that could be one, which created a mindset in the United States for other abstract wars, like the War on Terror, which allows us to be constantly in the mindset of normalizing what appears to be bloodless wars, but in fact are violent and deadly on a daily basis. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live again this week, Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. We got a lot of get well soon messages from listeners since being sick, getting hospitalized, and now I am somewhat recuperating. David S. writes, Chuck, best wishes for your continuing recovery. Words can't express how much you are missed. 
So many of us are looking forward to hearing Neil Young. Thank you again in the introduction. Toward that goal, I just read a Twitter thread by J. David McSwain, author of a soon-to-be-published book called Pandemic Incorporated, subtitled Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. I think he would make a great guest in solidarity, David. So here's what the publisher's page says about Pandemic Incorporated, and this is pretty frightening. Pandemic Incorporated is the story of the fraudster who signed a multi-million dollar contract with the government to provide life-saving PPE and yet never came up with a single mask. The Navy Admiral at the helm of the National Hunt for Additional Medical Resources, the Department of Health whistleblower who championed masks early on and was silenced by the government and conservative media, and the politician who callously slashed federal emergency funding and gutted the federal PPE stockpile. Winner of the Goldsmith Prize for investigative reporting, McSwain connects the dots between backdoor deals and the spoil system to provide the definitive account of how this pandemic was so catastrophically mishandled. Shocking and revelatory pandemic incorporated exposes a system that is both deeply rigged and... Singularly American. Thanks for the guest suggestion, David. You too can send your guest suggestions to us at chuck at this is hell.com. And if we have your suggested guest on air, we'll thank you, thank you personally during that interview. Ian M. also emailed us while I was out writing, Hey, Chuck, I don't follow y'all on Twitter. But I got worried and wanted to see what was up. My fears were confirmed when I discovered you were in the hospital for a while. I'm so sorry to hear you're having a rough go of it. Life has been a little less heavenly without your daily dose of hell. And I'm realizing how much of an important companion your show is in my life. You're irreplaceable, Chuck. But take care of yourself. Take as much time as you need. But just know your listeners are rooting for you. And we can't wait to have you back. Ian. So thank you, Ian. And I cannot thank all of you enough because uh, I was not only physically at one of the lowest points in my life, but, but I was also emotionally at one of the lowest points in my life. And when I got out of the hospital and was still barely able to walk, it was words of encouragement from people like you, Ian, that really helped. So thanks, Ian, and everybody who told me to get well soon. And, uh, Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. Lindsay, I know you have Hefe on the line. That I do. I know you do. I'm absolutely certain that you do. 100% positive. All right. What, the intro's not working? Uh Oh, I forgot about the intro. My bad. <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. I can... It's been a long time. It's been three months. Brooding calves. I have been incubating nothing. (laughs) It's not as easy as it sounds. Incidentally, sitting on eggs to keep them warm is called brooding. In the 16th century in Nuremberg, there was a cobbler, choir singer, and habitual writer of plays, songs, and poems named Hans Sachs, who, among his other works, wrote a short comic, Fasnachspiel, a play for Shrovetide or Carnival called Das Kalbbrüten. At University of Michigan, Professor Martin Walsh, now lecturer emeritus, introduced it to me in translation as Brooding Calves. Uh, 
It begins with a peasant sitting on a large wheel of cheese out of which he believes cattle will hatch. And that's exactly what goes through my head when people ask me, where do you get your ideas? They emerge spontaneously like calves out of cheese. When chickens brood, they don't crush their eggs because their butts are feathered and fluffy, their bones light and porous, and the albumin and yolk inside the shells pushes back against the pressure of the chicken's weight. Now, I possess about as peach-like a butt as a middle-aged white man can boast, but it is by no means fluffy, and a hollow egg has nothing inside it to support the shell by pushing against my weight, so brooding nothing is not an easy thing for someone with my gender and age handicaps. But do I get special consideration? No. You know who gets special consideration for brooding their ideas? The Conservative Political Action Committee. They had this great idea to partner with Viktor Orban, autocratic leader of Hungary and apparently a conservative movement hero. They held their recent convention of global whining and xenophobic tantrums in Hungary, and fascist strongman Orban, the conservative hero, delivered the keynote speech. Hungary! Ring any bells? Any Jews, gay people, communists, Catholics, Poles, or Roma have surviving memories of Hungary? My neighbor, when I was growing up, had a tattoo on her arm from a Hungarian concentration camp. Now, CPAC, the international fundraising and organizing wing of the GOP, had this great idea to announce how fascist they are in Budapest. CPAC's organizers picked anti-democratic, autocratically-led Hungary because they consider it one of the bastions of the conservative resistance to the ultra-progressive woke revolution, according to CPAC's website. This represents the most obvious symptom of the internationalization of the fascist movement Steve Bannon first spearheaded, spreading the ideology all over Europe. How did the organizers of CPAC brood these spectacular ideas? Their tushies are even more bony than mine. Do they have to hire chickens to sit on their viper eggs? Do they perhaps even hire vipers? No, they get special consideration because legally psychotic talking head Rick Santorum belongs to their organization. Santorum is also the term for a warm slurry of poo, jizz, and lube that oozes out of tushies after anal copulation. And Rick Santorum has the evangelical ability to transform into that substance. It's similar to how styrofoam wafers and wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus. Rick Santorum becomes that substance manifest in the world and butters those conservative viper eggs in his warmth, thereby brooding them while Bannon and the rest of the international Nazis go about the business of schmoozing each other up. In the end, it's a whole lot of buttering, but with divisions of labor, as is appropriate to any capitalist fanaticism. Do I get such special consideration? Do I get such special rights? No, because I don't qualify for the mentally handicapped fascist discount at Chick-fil-A, the same card that gets you into all the zany events at CPAC Hungary. Now, I know identity politics has its problems, mainly when it distracts from and derails discussions of class interests. But I'm pretty sure that going all international Nazi conference and fascist Hungary about it is an overreaction. I'm pretty sure going all Seb Gorka about pronouns is overkill. You know who else gets special treatment when brooding their ideas? Netflix comedians. Trans people aren't new. Trans people have been around since even before Eddie Murphy was caught giving a ride to Samoan trans performer and sex worker Shalimar Sayuli back in 97. 
Other trans workers Murphy loved to pay for sex were given about 15000 a pop to keep their stories on the DL. But now that there are all gender toilets in some woke places and trans people's self-definitions are beginning to be respected, Dave Chappelle and now copycat trans disparager and prestige TV factory Ricky Gervais have used Netflix as a bully pulpit to bully the trans community with their brilliant definitions of gender. Heedless of Eddie Murphy's preference for ladies with male genitalia, Gervais urges women to lose theirs. Did he clear this demand with Eddie Murphy, who is an elder statesman of the comedy and sex renters communities? Or did both Gervais and Chappelle decide to be on Team Hitler independently? We may never know how these Netflix elitists got on the same page about being okay with bigotry, but we do know they get special privileges when brooding their poisonous snake eggs. They get special saunas that help raise their core temperatures so that all they have to do is stand next to their eggs to incubate them. They are technologically enhanced incubators, like Tucker Carlson's irradiated balls are meant to be. Gervais and Chappelle are basically Tucker Carlson's ideal testicles. I, on the other hand, being an impoverished, mouthy, left-wing writer, have to make my own hot air, standing in an uncomfortable CIA stress position, radiating as much infrared energy as I can from my hovering buttocks, incubating my empty eggs by pure gumption. But let me assure you, when my nothing hatches, it will outshine any and all the basilisk chimerical somethings the more privileged brooders in our hierarchy could ever come up with. Originality just takes time, my friends. This has been the moment of truth. Yeah, good day. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is... Hell, the question from hell is, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? What new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Do we have any more responses to this week's question from hell, Lindsay? No, I I read all of them all right. just a second ago. <laughs> all right, so we have the rest of the, the answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, let's see. The answers I liked the most were I did like Nicholas replying uh, to this week's qu- question from hell. Again, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? I really enjoyed Nicholas saying the human virus. Warren saying the pandemic of ignorance. But what else is new? Nicole writing here in Ontario, we are infected with a provincial election. All cities and towns are lawn sign infested. Get me a vaccine for electoralism ASAP, please. Also, I liked a neoliberal dystopia saying, what pandemic? And Rock Taster saying, bloody frogs. I think those are all really great. But I'm going to say this week's winner is Nicole, because I loved her answer to this week's question from hell. Again, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? And Nicole writes, here in Ontario, we are infected with a provincial election. All cities and towns are lawn sign infested. Get me a vaccine for electoralism. ASAP, please. So, Nicole, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is just send us which piece of merchandise you want from uh, us here. This is hell. You can all, you can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Tell us what you want and send us your mailing address, and we will get it in the mail to you post-haste. Uh, 
My answer to this week's question from hell, what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? It's the, uh, you know, the one that's been happening lately, the pandemic of mass shootings and mass murders here in the United States that we choose to do absolutely nothing about except buy more guns to either arm the police or arm ourselves. And that's definitely not the solution. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answer to this week's question from hell. We got another guest suggestion at Chuck at thisishell.com. This one from Paul S. who writes, uh, let's see. Oh, Paul writes, thanks for choosing my answer as the winner for the question from hell back in February. That question being, what conflict are you avoiding? I have now joined the exclusive but rapidly growing club of people who have personally benefited from the Russo-Ukrainian war. For my prize, I'll choose the white and red trucker cap. His answer to the question from hell was the conflict that he is avoiding is the conflict between the raccoons in his attic. Paul also writes, I have a guest recommendation, Joe Burns, uh, author of Class Struggle Unionism from Haymarket Books. Burns offers a passionate critique of the dominant mode of thinking on the labor left. The organizing model popularized by the likes of past guests on This Is Hell, Jane McElvey, and Labor Notes, arguing that it focuses too much on winning reforms within the current structures of business-friendly labor law, costly NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, campaigns, and staff-heavy union bureaucracy and not enough on building militant movements on the shop floor. Surely both approaches are improvements from the current norm in the labor movement of feckless cooperation with bosses and fealty to disinterested Democrats. But as change is needed and needed fast, it's an interesting debate worth having. Thanks again for everything you do and keep up the great work. I'm looking forward to wearing the hat to work and waiting for people to ask me why this is hell because I'll have a good answer ready for them. Signed, Paul. Paul's answer again to the question from Al back in February. Uh, what conflict are you trying to avoid is the conflict between the raccoons in his attic. And if anyone listening right now has raccoons in a conflict in your attic, I would also suggest you avoid that conflict at all costs. As for uh, his guest suggestion, Joe Burns, author of Class Struggle Unionism, he, I believe he is available for interviews right now, so we're adding it to the guest list, and we will see what we can do about getting Joe on the show and soon. A couple more real quick get well soon emails before we go. Hey, yes. Chuck. Yes. Uh, Jeff is here if you want to try one more time. Jeff, do you want to try the moment of truth one more time? Uh, let me press the intro. One, two, you know. Just a minute, I have to quit something. <laughs> Hot damn, I'm glad that we got you on. Brooding calves. <laughs> yes, the problem is all on my end, by the way, in case anyone's wondering. Brooding calves. I have been incubating nothing. 
It's not as easy as it sounds. Incidentally, sitting on eggs to keep them warm is called brooding. In the 16th century, in Nuremberg, there was a cobbler, choir singer, and habitual writer of plays, songs, and poems named Hans Sachs, who, among his other works, wrote a short comic, Fasnachspiel, a play for Shrovetide or Carnival called Das Kalbebrüten. At University of Michigan, Professor Martin Walsh, now lecturer emeritus, introduced it to me in translation as brooding calves. It begins with a peasant sitting on a large wheel of cheese out of which he believes cattle will hatch. And that's exactly what goes through my head when people ask me, where do you get your ideas? They emerge spontaneously like calves out of cheese. When chickens brood, they don't crush their eggs because their butts are feathered and fluffy, their bones light and porous, and the albumen and yolk inside the shells pushes back against the pressure of the chicken's weight. Now, I possess about as peach-like a butt as a middle-aged white man can boast, but it is by no means fluffy, and a hollow egg has nothing inside it to support the shell by pushing against my weight, so brooding nothing is not an easy thing for someone with my gender and age handicaps. But do I get special consideration? No. You know who gets special consideration for brooding their ideas? The Conservative Political Action Committee. They had this great idea to partner with Viktor Orban, autocratic leader of Hungary and apparently a conservative movement hero. They held their recent convention of global whining and xenophobic tantrums in Hungary and fascist strongman Orban, the conservative hero, delivered the keynote speech. Hungary! Ring any bells? Any Jews, gay people, communists, Catholics, Poles, or Roma have surviving memories of Hungary? My neighbor, when I was growing up, had a tattoo on her arm from a Hungarian concentration camp. Now, CPAC, the international fundraising and organizing wing of the GOP, had this great idea to announce how fascist they are in Budapest. CPAC's organizers picked anti-democratic, anti-democratic, um, anti autocratically led Hungary because they consider it one of the bastions of the conservative resistance to the ultra-progressive woke revolution, according to CPAC's website. This represents the most obvious symptom of the internationalization of the fascist movement Steve Bannon first spearheaded, spreading the ideology all over Europe. How did the organizers of CPAC brood these spectacular ideas? Their tushies are even more bony than mine. Do they have to hire chickens to sit on their viper eggs? Do they perhaps even hire vipers? No, they get special consideration because legally psychotic talking head Rick Santorum belongs to their organization. Santorum is also the term for a warm slurry of poo, jizz, and lube that oozes out of tushies after anal copulation. And Rick Santorum has the evangelical ability to transform into that substance. It's similar to how styrofoam wafers and wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus. Rick Santorum becomes that substance manifest in the world and butters those conservative viper eggs in his warmth, thereby brooding them while Bannon and the rest of the international Nazis go about the business of schmoozing each other up. In the end, it's a whole lot of buttering, but with divisions of labor, as is appropriate to any capitalist fanaticism. Do I get such special consideration? Do I get such special rights? No, because I don't qualify for the mentally handicapped fascist discount at Chick-fil-A, the same card that gets you into all the zany events at CPAC Hungary. Now, 
I know identity politics has its problems, mainly when it distracts from and derails discussions of class interests, but I'm pretty sure that going all international Nazi conference and fascist Hungary about it is an overreaction. I'm pretty sure going all Seb Gorka about pronouns is overkill. You know who else gets special treatment when brooding their ideas? Netflix comedians. Trans people aren't new. Trans people have been around since even before Eddie Murphy was caught giving a ride to Samoan trans performer and sex worker Shalimar Sayuli back in 97. Other trans workers Murphy loved to pay for sex were given about 15000 a pop to keep their stories on the DL. But now that there are all gender toilets in some woke places and trans people's self-definitions are beginning to be respected, Dave Chappelle, and now copycat trans disparager and prestige TV factory Ricky Gervais, have used Netflix as a bully pulpit to bully the trans community with their brilliant definitions of gender. Heedless of Eddie Murphy's preference for ladies with male genitalia, Gervais urges women to lose theirs. Did he clear this demand with Eddie Murphy, who is an elder statesman of the comedy and sex renters communities? Or did both Gervais and Chappelle decide to be on Team Hitler independently? We may never know how these Netflix elitists got on the same page about being okay with bigotry, but we do know they get special privileges when brooding their poisonous snake eggs. They get special saunas that help raise their core temperatures so that all they have to do is stand next to their eggs to incubate them. They are technologically enhanced incubators, like Tucker Carlson's irradiate Ill, like Tucker Carlson's irradiated balls are meant to be. Gervais and Chappelle are basically Tucker Carlson's ideal testicles. I, on the other hand, being an impoverished, mouthy left-wing writer, have to make my own hot air, standing in an uncomfortable CIA stress position, radiating, <clears throat> radiating as much infrared energy as I can from my hovering buttocks, incubating my empty eggs by pure gumption. But let me assure you, when my nothing hatches, it will outshine any and all the basilisk chimerical somethings the more privileged brooders in our hierarchy could ever come up with. Originality just takes time, my friends. This has been the moment of truth. Yeah, good day. So how was your recent visit here to Chicago? You were here for a couple of weeks. It was so great i was here for three weeks wow it was excellent it was excellent i got to see you I got to see laura I got to see all the people at carrie's lounge the wonderful carrie's lounge where everybody must go and visit and how was malortopia did you go to malortopia I, I, I hope not i exactly i think in retrospect <laughs> we hope that i didn't go but i did go and well, uh, you did. yeah it was probably a mistake and i, I was in so much back pain when I was leaving that I didn't even think about doing a shot of Malort, which I really needed to do a shot of Malort. Once I got about 100 yards away from the bar, I realized oh, no. how that probably would have cured my situation. I had Malort gelato, which was really good. And then I had wow. this Malort pie from Hoosier Mama Pie Company. It was outstanding, as was the Malort mustard. I had some on a hot dog. First of oh all, I'm not God, supposed to be. This is amazing. I'm not supposed yeah. to be eating hot dogs. I'm not supposed to be eating mustard, especially 
one that is stone ground because they're oh, right bits. little seas exactly so I'm counterindicated not... for diverticulitis exactly so i'm not supposed to be doing any of those things and i did all of those things on saturday night just gritting my teeth and lower back pain getting worse and worse so yeah i got over here it was a blast you know the food and it was amazing i'm telling you that malort pie was absolutely incredible it's called chicago sunrise i think absolutely amazing it was really good i had a great time it's just that i was in a lot of pain the whole time and i had to bail a little bit early the pie itself was called chicago sunrise yes (laughs) you like that that i chuck in a world where this is hell (laughs) yeah uh we all make our own lortopia, I guess. <laughs> yes, we do. Cheer ourselves up into call the pie like that. Chicago Sunrise. Uh, I guess, sure, why not? Yeah. Why not? Right. You know, the sun does rise in Chicago. It does rise in Chicago. Sometimes. I don't think it did today. It sounds like it's been raining. Oh, my God. It was raining for like 60 days in a row. Yeah, it was. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention about Chicago Sunrise, just the idea of sunrise. I love the name. Uh, there's an east side neighborhood that my family is from, and it used to be just known as the east side. It didn't have much more of a name than that. But apparently at some point, realtors decide to rename it Morningside because it's on the Uh, east side, so you'll get sunrise. And when I mentioned that to my mom, who passed away a while ago, I said, did you know the neighborhood is now called Morningside? And she just looked at me like I was the biggest idiot in the world. (laughs) Like she, she, I've never been stared at by my mom. And she was like, it's the east side. Like, Wait, it's the east side of East Detroit? No, of Detroit. They're, they're, <laughs> they were from my grandmother and my parents. Were, they were all raised on the east side of Detroit. Okay. And East Detroit uh, doesn't exist anymore anyway. So, what, It must have been the east side of something at some point, though. No, it never was. It was never east of anything. That's the <laughs> was it even point. in Michigan? <laughs> it was in Michigan. But it I was loved, it in the, in the middle of the Detroit River? <laughs> it was called Halfway, which is halfway between the... Uh, the county courthouse in Detroit and the county courthouse in Port Huron. Now, if you look those two things up, it's not even close to being halfway. So they changed the name to East Detroit because they were trying to latch on to the real estate success that Detroit was having in the you know late 20s, early 30s. Uh, and then when that turned sour, they decided to change it to East Point to make people think that it was near Gross Point, which it is not and has nothing to do with Gross Point. So there's that little history right there. And by the way, Kid Rock has never done any good music except for a song about East Point where he points out the racism of everybody who lives there. Oh, so you should check that that's out. nice of him to do <laughs> since he's so cowardly about it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the weird thing about it. Like you're listening to Kid Rock do an anti-racist song and you're thinking, wow, do Kid Rock fans know about this song? Because I don't think he'd have any <laughs> if people well, heard. I think he once had aspirations to be a hip-hop artist. I think he did, too, while he was riding his horses on his family farm in Romulus. All right, Jeffy. Yeah? Stay beautiful. Oh, you haven't seen me lately. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> yes, you have. You're right. Okay, I'll take your advice. Okay, a couple more. I was mentioning a couple more Get Well email get well soon emails that i got uh this is from alex in arizona he writes hey chuck just wanted to say that i'm wish i'm thinking about you and i'm sending lots of love and warmth as you heal up we've never met but i know you've brightened my life considerably and i appreciate you and your work greatly solidarity from the desert 
warmly. Alex and Ty S. emails to say, Hi, Chuck. I'm so glad to hear that you're out of the hospital. I've been listening to old episodes to fill the this is hell shaped void in my life while packing up my apartment for a long distance distance move. Truly a hellish activity. The archives are great and all, but I've really been missing new interviews and monologues. Current events are even more hellish out there than usual, which is saying something. Hope your convalescence goes smoothly, Ty. So thanks, Ty, and everyone who sent their well wishes. Like I said earlier, truly appreciated. But one thing. Ty mentions that it's even more hellish out there than usual, which is saying something. I mean, I got to agree with you, Ty. Things look like they're getting worse and worse. And when you are laid up in the hospital or recuperating in a bed at home, like I was and still am, and things seem to be getting even worser, that can really mess with you. And it did me. So again, Thanks for each and every one of you who showed so much kindness toward myself and gratitude for the show while it was out. So, Lindsay, do we have anyone confirmed as guests for next week's show? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I think I'm have... not with me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I'll tell people what it is. So, uh, next week our guest will be Adrian Shirk. Adrian was supposed to be on this week, but I had to cancel the last minute because my back went out. Adrian is author of Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia, an exploration of American ideas regarding utopia during late-stage capitalism. Then I believe we are going to be speaking with Calvin Graham, who co-wrote the University of Tulsa Law Review article with Andre Douglas Pond uh, Cummings. The article is called Racial Capitalism and Race Massacres, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine's Sharecroppers, and that will be on the 101st anniversary of the Black Wall Street massacre that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, of course, that's probably not going to get much coverage this year, but on its 100th anniversary last year, it was a big deal, but eh, the media doesn't like returning to stories that make them uncomfortable. And then I believe our guest is going to be Asim Sayad Akhtar who wrote the Catalyst Journal article, Breaking Afghanistan. Asim uh, teaches political economy at the National Institute of Pakistan Studies at Quad-e-Azam University. And, of course, we'll have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Next week, uh, following Memorial Day weekend, we will be doing live shows on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at... 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after at the same place, and then Patreon will be on Friday instead. This week's Hangover Cure is brunch. Thanks to this week's guests, including organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal, who wrote the New Republic article, Inside L.A.'s Homeless Industrial Complex. Thanks to the person we just spoke with, anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the NEMA magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. And thanks to Lindsey Gorey for running the board today. Also thanks to Dan Hill, Alexander Jerry, and Sebastian Vupper for their work this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Hummiston and Richard Norwood. Just because. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be describing the many challenges of going from the hell of hospitalization to facing the hell of we face every week here on This Is Hell. And our, we'll also be featuring our 2007 conversation with Ben Wallace-Wells on how and why we lost the war on drugs 15 freaking years ago. And that war is still going strong. That's this week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
Remember, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've shared with you here on This Is Hell this week. Let's see if I can remember this. By sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.